Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me this evening to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading from verses 18 through 25 tonight. Romans 8, 18 to 25. Well, tonight we've arrived at that last installment, the last installment in this series that we've been doing on the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation. And tonight we come to that final link in the golden chain of salvation, the great doctrine of the believer's glorification. Remember, many weeks ago, we thought about union with Christ and then election and all the way until now. And all along, we've been saying that the Bible gives us various phrases or various dimensions, if you like, of our salvation. Words like justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification, salvation, etc. What do they all mean and how do they all relate to one another? And so that golden chain of salvation, that that term as far as we know, first coined by the Puritan William Perkins, is a beautiful way to illustrate our salvation and the various phases or dimensions or aspects of it, which God is working out from eternity past to eternity future. And the golden chain describes our experience of it. And what a truth, gloriously and comfortingly, that each link in that chain inevitably inexorably leads to the next link in the chain. So sure and so certain is the salvation that God works in his people. I hope that you've been able to see that along the way. I hope that this series has been as beneficial to you as it has been to me, at least in terms of studying up for it. And I hope that it's been as much of a comfort to your soul as it's been intended to be. Now last time, a few weeks ago, we thought about, or rather just last Lord's Day, we thought about perseverance, the doctrine of perseverance. Until God calls us home at last, or until Christ returns, whichever comes first, he that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's perseverance. But where does this process of salvation, this golden chain, end? And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening, and the great doctrine of the believer's glorification. So let's look to Romans chapter 8, shall we? We'll read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and his blessing. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. This is God's holy word. Hear it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen thus far. God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord God, grant us, once again we ask, the ministry of your Holy Spirit to our minds and to our hearts, 
so that we may understand what it is we've just read and what it is that we're going to be pondering and studying and thinking about and meditating on tonight and that you would use your word in our hearts. Truly, we ask that you would give us illumination. We cannot rightly understand your word apart from the illumination of the ministry of you, God the Holy Spirit. So help us. Give us that illumination and give us a love for and give us an attention to your precious word tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do you think about the life to come? How often do you think about the life to come? How often do you ponder the reality that soon and very soon we will depart this body and go and be with the Lord if he should tarry? Or, perhaps if the Lord should return, that we shall all be changed and caught up forever to be with the Lord. Whether we're thinking of heaven, that intermediate state where our soul is temporarily apart from our body, which remains in the ground, or whether we're thinking of the new heavens and earth, that, that final glorified state where our bodies and souls are forever united and together with the Lord, whether heaven or the new heavens, and we'll speak more about that distinction later on, whether the heaven or the new heavens, how often do we give that notion some thought? Is heaven sweet to you when you think of that reality? I fear, and I ask that because I fear that too often the reality of heaven and the reality of paradise has become uh, passe in American Christianity. Now, perhaps because earlier generations may have overly sentimentalized it. Certain branches of Christianity seemed to water down or cheapen Christianity to this kind of shallow religion of self-preservation such that Christianity ultimately was nothing more than, well, we all go to heaven when we die. And so that's all Christianity was. And so you prayed a prayer when you were young, and you were good to go. And that was that. Now, that's not how you all think, and I know that, brothers and sisters, but I bet you know some people, I bet you know some friends, maybe some loved ones even, who think that way. Now, it's not necessarily their fault. It may be that they were not given good and adequate and meaty teaching, and we don't hold that against them. But it is a sense of sadness when Christians are deprived of the the fullness of understanding of what our faith is and means. And there were also some Christians who sort of dismissed the idea that we had any responsibility to do anything here on earth. Serving other people, loving our neighbor, a duty to be a good steward of God's earth. This idea, even we heard it described this morning, of vocation and calling, this idea that we ought to work hard and devoutly at whatever our calling and vocation is in life, that we should labor as unto the Lord, that, that everything from art and literature and music to government to street sweeping and sewage cleaning, that if you labored faithfully in your vocation in the things of this earth, it brought your God glory. Sometimes, in some sectors of Christianity, that idea got poo-pooed and dismissed. Well, my friends, as in so many other things in life, this aphorism is true. The abuse of a good thing does not negate the goodness of the good thing. The abuse of a good thing does not negate the goodness of a good thing. I would repeat uh, the Latin phrase for you, but I've forgotten it, even though Dr. Wilborn said saying it in Latin always sounds much more profound, but I've forgotten what it is at the moment. But just because, brothers and sisters, just because others have misunderstood or or, or cheapened or misused or sentimentalized the doctrine of heaven, or even more precisely, the doctrine of glorification, just because it's been abused in some quarters does not mean that we should toss it out. 
Don't toss the baby out with the bathwater. The doctrine of glorification is a good and glorious thing. How many of us spend time pondering the reality, longing for that time when sin shall be no more? Do you ever, when you think of sin, do you ever get just flat out sick of it? Just sick and tired of sin and your own sin? You're fed up with it. How many of us spend time pondering the reality when we shall dwell with the Lord and, and not just that there shall, there shall be no more sickness and sorrow, not just that there will be no more cancer and disease, but there shall be no lying, no falsehood, no betrayal, no hurt, no fear or danger, no sin, no, no temptation to sin, no desire to sin, no opportunity to sin. There, sh- there shall be the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, in an eternity of blissful fellowship where we shall be so caught up in adoring the God who has redeemed us that there shall not even be the possibility of sin in that glorious place. And each day, if that's even, if that's even the right term to measure the, the eons of the passing of eternity, each day your mortal mind shall discover something fresh and wondrous about your God as your glorified mortal mind is expanded to understand more about the depths of his perfections. Each day is a, is a new opportunity to try, to try in vain to plumb the depths of his love. And every day as you seek to plumb those depths, you will find it yet again fathomless. You, you'll, you'll see your fellow Christians, those you knew in this life, and those, you'll, you'll see those from other nations and ages whom you've never known, and you'll be thrilled to see them. And you'll see those that are closer to the throne than you. And there will be those whose reward in heaven is greater than your own. And you won't be jealous. But it will thrill your now sinless and sin-free heart in eternity to see your brother or sister so greatly caught up in the love and delight of Christ. And there he is at the center of it all. Christ, as a lamb who was slain, yet now risen and conquering and reigning, seated on his throne, the one who has redeemed you with his precious blood, the one who has vanquished evil and banished Satan, slaughtered sin and made all things well. How often, how much do you long for that? I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough. But tonight we want to think about that. Tonight we want to talk about glorification. Glorification describes the, the final movement, if you like, the crowning act, the great crescendo, the final, the final act that God, by his Holy Spirit, has been building in our lives, the final capstone of our salvation. So two simple points to outline our study tonight. I want to describe the doctrine of glorification, that is, what it means, and then I want to finish by giving two simple applications for our lives. So quite simply, the doctrine of glorification explained, and then the doctrine of glorification applied. So let's think first, then, about the doctrine explained. The doctrine explained. And, as we seek to better understand this doctrine, take note of this, as one commentator so helpfully reminded me, glorification is not simply a description of what happens to believers when we die. Glorification is not simply a description of what happens to believers when we die. It is that, but as so many times, it is more than that. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism wonderfully puts it like this. The soul of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and they immediately pass into glory. 
And their bodies, still being united to Christ, do sleep in the grave until the resurrection. So that's an important distinction that we're making in our study tonight, friends. We're talking about going to heaven and we're talking about glorification, but those are actually two different things in God's economy. They're both wonderful things, but they are two different things. Glorification has not yet come to us until bodies are raised from the grave to glory and made like Christ's glorified body. Right? So for the Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus tonight, when you go home to your reward, if you were to, if you were to die tomorrow, your soul would pass immediately into the presence of your Savior, there to dwell in unbroken fellowship with him. You, you will see his glory already exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sin's presence and its power will be gone forever. That's what the catechism says. The soul of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and they immediately pass into glory. But you will not yet have been glorified fully until the last enemy, which is death, has been undone and defeated. There is still yet an effect. There there is still yet a consequence of sin that King Jesus must deal with in his own holy timeline, and that is the temporary separation of body from soul. And he will deal with that at the end of time when he comes again to finally vanquish death. So in this intermediate state, your body is in the grave, in the ground, and your soul is in heaven if you were to die tomorrow, presuming the Lord doesn't come back between now and then. But when he does come back, the bodies of believers who have died and are buried in the ground, those bodies will be raised from their graves, they will be reunited to their souls, and we are thus given glorified bodies for all eternity, like Christ's own glorified resurrected body. That is when glorification happens. If I can put it this way, as wondrous as it will be for our souls to be in heaven with Christ, it will be infinitely better yet when our bodies are there too, when our bodies will be reunited with our souls to be forever in paradise. Because that reality is the intended existence that God created for us to live in. This is going way back, but you know it. Think back to Genesis. Think back to the dawn of time, the beginning of all creation. God's original created design was for us to live body and soul before his presence in bliss forever. Yes, not just soul, but body and soul. That's how paradise was originally instituted. Think of it this way, as one commentator pointed out. When we think of Jesus' resurrection, when do we say that he was glorified? When he died on the cross? His soul went to paradise, but his body went to the tomb. Was he glorified then? No. The scriptures say that Christ's glorification and exaltation was on the third day when he rose bodily from the grave. As it was for the Lord Jesus, so too it is for us. Do you remember that that nasty, old, ancient heresy, Gnosticism? I know the teens do. We talked about that a lot this past quarter up in uh, the youth Sunday school. You're probably sick of me uh, talking about it. We talked so much about Gnosticism and how Athanasius dealt with it and how Augustine dealt with it and how everybody was dealing with it. Irenaeus dealt with it. We're tired of, y'all are probably tired of hearing about Gnosticism. But remember, Gnosticism was that, that religion or that religious idea that taught that the physical world is bad and bodies are bad and the material world is bad. And what it meant for God to save us was to get us out of this prison of our bodies and get us into heaven. So physical body, physical earth, bad, soul, spirit, good. Well, brothers and sisters, that line of thinking is a heresy. It is not Christian truth. If the idea 
that physicality and bodies are bad, if we take that to its logical conclusion, then the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a terrible thing because his soul was re-imprisoned within that dreadful body. But that is not the case at all. Remember Paul, the apostle, 1 Corinthians 15? He's thinking about the day when the Lord Jesus returns. Remember what he says? The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable body puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Our main text tonight, and we'll be referencing a variety of different texts as we have already, but our main text tonight from Romans chapter 8 tells us that as momentous as the raising of our bodies is, that raising actually signals, that that raising of our bodies actually indicates something even more tremendous. It signals that moment when the whole physical cosmos, the whole universe itself, will undergo renewal. You see what Paul says there in Romans 8, verse 19? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 21, at at that revealing, when it happens, at that revealing, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now notice that phrase right there at the end of verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what all creation, trees and rocks and stars and streams and riverbeds and everything else, that's what creation itself is waiting for. Now that's entirely counterintuitive to how we are accustomed to thinking, isn't it? We we usually think that people... Or, or animals, sentient creatures, we, we adapt to our environment. That's how we survive. We, we, we assess the environment around us, we see what it's like, and we adapt accordingly in order to get by and be able to live within it. If we live in the middle of the desert, we have nice, loose-fitting, free-flowing clothing to keep cool. If we lived up in the Arctic, we've got to have layer upon layer upon layer to keep warm so we don't freeze to death. We adapt to our environment. But Paul says, a day is coming... When God is going to make you glorified, and then he's going to take the cosmos and make it fit you. Now that's incredible. I love what one commentator said regarding this verse. And see see if this doesn't just grab right your heartstrings. What do you say to a Christian parent when their disabled child is singled out? Doesn't develop like other children of their age. What is the hope of a Christian woman when chemotherapy robs her of her hair in a culture that prizes appearances so very highly? What is the hope of a Christian father who can no longer provide for his family because chronic illness has left him unable to work? What is the hope? It is not that one day God will make us fit for our environments once again so that we can function in the world as we used to. No, it is rather that our Father who loves us will glorify us. And then he will rebuild the fabric of the cosmos itself to make our environments fit us. We will no longer be out of place. We will be glorified. And the natural world will be brought into line with who God will make us be. Close quote. Remember Psalm 8? What is man that you are mindful of him? 
and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You, brothers and sisters, are God's crowning achievement in all creation. You're made in his image, the Imago Dei. Not, not even the angels get that bragging right. That's how we, a lot of folks tend to think, that they think, if they're thinking of a hierarchy. God is, the, is at the top, then the angels rank underneath him, and then people rank underneath that. Actually, no, positions two and three are reversed. God, mankind, angels. You are made in his image. You are his crowning achievement. Not even the angels get that bragging right. And in the end, God will cause even the universe itself to contour around you, to conform its reality around your existence as he has made you to be. Glorified. Two other important facts that we need to know about this doctrine, as one commentator pointed out. One, first, glorification is not an individual thing. That's important. We are converted individually, yes, but we are glorified together, corporately. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, and so we will always be ever with the Lord. You see, friends, there are those who are alive when Jesus returns and those who have died over the centuries before, and they will be together, will together be caught up the whole, together. The whole church since Genesis, when the Savior comes, will be glorified together corporately as one glorious entity of the church militant and now all together the church triumphant en masse on that great day. That's one thing to notice about glorification is that corporate aspect of it. But secondly, glorification is actually the last stage, the last act, the last aspect, if you will, part of that final exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, make sure we hash this out rightly. The Lord Jesus is exalted. He is at the right hand of the Father on high. But there's still an aspect of his, of his being exalted that has not yet taken place. And that's when he comes again. And when all the world shall see him, all the world shall see him, either with rejoicing or dread, but they shall all know, this is the Lord of all creation as he descends in the clouds. The majesty of our exalted Christ, brighter even than the sun. The full and final display of the glory of Christ to the world. That final aspect of his exaltation. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, verse 13, he speaks about that moment as the moment when Christ's glory is revealed. And our friend, the old Scottish professor John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is that wonderful book on the Ordo Salutis that I've loosely based this series off of, Professor Murray notes this. He says, there will be a perfect coincidence of the revelation of the Father's glory, of the revelation of the glory of Christ, and of the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The glorification of the elect will coincide with the final act of the Father and the exaltation and glorification of the Son as these, this three-pronged salvific aspect comes together in holy and blessed simultaneous action. This is the crowning achievement of God's saving act, the, the, the crowning achievement of his exalting of his Son before all the watching world with the, the universe itself as the audience. And in that same moment, 
as he crowns the exaltation of his son before the universe, in that same moment he also performs the crowning achievement of our salvation. Right along there with his son. He glorifies us, brothers and sisters. Did you notice Romans 8 verse 17? As it it was there, you might have looked at it before we read there at verse 18, just right above there in that section. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be made like him. God will present to himself a glorious church, a glorious bride, a glorious glorified people. He's getting his people ready for the day when he comes and the work will be finished at last. And when that day comes, we shall be resplendent resplendent like his own glorified and exalted son. So that's the first thing we need to think about, the doctrine of glorification explained. But then secondly, and briefly, the doctrine of glorification applied. How do we use this great truth of glorification? It seems like something so far off, it's just down the pipeline, it's down the timeline, something that's useful to us decades, years, centuries from now. Well, not entirely. There's many ways for us to use this truth, but let me highlight just two for us briefly tonight. First of all, look at verse 18 and verse 24 there in our text. I consider, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then down at verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. One way we apply it is that the doctrine of glorification helps us endure suffering here and now. The doctrine of glorification helps us endure suffering here and now. Now, life here in this world is hard, no bones about it. Now, life in 21st century America is pleasant in many ways, yes. We have all kinds of comforts. We have many medical advancements. We praise the Lord for that. But that in no way has, has insulated us from the pains and the fallout and the consequences of sin. But we have sin. We do sin. Friends betray us. Families resent us. Some of us know abandonment and heartache. Some of us know betrayal. The deterioration of the body of our dear friends. The, the ravages of cancer. How we've been praying, haven't we? How we've been praying for for Tom Matthews and his various forms of cancer and suffering. We've had several of you that have been mourning the loss of loved ones, of relatives. Even this past year, I think immediately of of Alan and Alan Lay and Kim Isbell, who've had to bury their loved ones even earlier this year. We think of Will McNitch anticipating his mother's homegoing to the Lord. Sin ruins everything. And life on this earth is chock full of so many sorrows. And yet the Apostle Paul would have you know, here's the truth of Holy Scripture. And here's the truth of God's unassailable promises. One day is coming. And one day the night of weeping will give way. And joy will come in the morning. Paul is saying, lock your eyes in that coming day. Cling to that hope. Cling to that not wishful thinking, but that guaranteed, God-ordained, Christ-verified, biblical hope that will come to pass. And press on through your trials, knowing that there is an end to them. And Christ is coming. 
And when he comes, he will turn everything that is wrong and upside down, and he will make it right side up again. He will make all things new and all things well, and at last we shall also be glorified with Christ. Many of you will know the quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata. Some say Johnny, some say Joni. But she says this, No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Close quote. There is hope. So press on. And secondly, the second point by way of application, not only does the doctrine of glorification give us hope to press on in our trials here and now, but this great truth also fuels our worship here and now. And really, that's been the whole point of this series, the ordo salutis, the, the golden chain, right? You, 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 we use Latin words, and it sounds so profound, right? So academic. Nah. Doctrine is for doxology, yes? Doctrine is for doxology. Theology is to fuel your praise and fuel your worship. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice, the apostle says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you hear that? Suffering now, yeah, but his glory is going to be revealed. Rejoicing now. He says, even in the midst of suffering, but guess what? Even more and greater joy when he comes. There was another pastor who quoted Johnny Erickson Tata when he was teaching on this doctrine as I was listening to that sermon in preparation for this one. And the quote was so good, I can't do it any better. So listen to her again. Johnny was at this conference that concluded where when the preacher concluded his message, he invited his hearers to kneel in prayer. And, of course, she's quadriplegic. She can't kneel. But she says this. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up and dance and kick and do aerobics. And although I'm sure the Lord Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise up on tiptoe, there is something I plan to do, if he wills, that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime, before the party gets going, Sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of my Lord Jesus. I can't wait. Close quote. Now, folks, I read that and I'm absolutely ashamed of myself. I mean, listen, our, our nation, our society is a mess. I know that. The the COVID situation, as we've been navigating it these last three years, at times it seems absolutely outrageous. And I've had moments where I've been pretty sour about things. Maybe you have too. I wonder if perhaps part of my joylessness, one of our joylessness, is because we've lost sight of the glory to come. We will see Jesus. Did Did you notice that that was the highlight of Johnny's joy that she was looking forward to? It it was not ultimately that she would have a new body at last, healed and jumping with functioning limbs and legs and arms that move and work and seeing loved ones again. All good things. It's not wrong to look forward to those things. But did you see that her chief joy, her chief joy that she was longing for was that in her new glorified body and soul she would see and praise her Savior. Seeing Jesus and that she has been made like him. 
That's the great desire. That's the supreme joy for all eternity. To glorify and enjoy not just heaven, but God. To enjoy God forever. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. What a day that will be. Don't you long for it? Oh Lord, haste the day. And what a day of rejoicing it will be. Let's pray. Oh Father, we do bless you for the Lord Jesus. The one who reigns even now at the Father's right hand, at your right hand in a glorified body. We will be like him one day when we see him as he is. Oh, how we do long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, rend the heavens and take us home. But in the meantime, help us to wait patiently with hope. Help us to run our race with perseverance until that day arrives. And may we revel in this truth, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen.